All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. It was a classic uh, reload the page problem. <laughs> turn it off, turn it on, hit it a few times. Eventually it works. Who got the truth? Is it you, is it you, is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you, is it you, is it you? Sit me down, say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to episode 27 of Acquired, the show about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today's episode is a discussion about M&A at Microsoft with Brian Schultz. Brian is the Managing Director and Head of Strategic Investments at Microsoft. And uh, Brian actually started at Microsoft in 1999 in CorpDev uh, and uh, then left for a little detour into the startup world in the mid-2000s. He left and co-founded Ontella here in Seattle, um, which was ultimately acquired by PhotoBucket. Uh, and he did that with Dan Shapiro, who's now the co-founder and CEO of Glowforge here in town. Shout out to Dan. Um, after that, he came 
back to big tech and to M&A, to Microsoft, uh, and has been back in corp dev and now running strategic investments ever since, uh, but remains very active in the Seattle startup scene and has been a friend to us uh, and many others here. So welcome, Brian, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. We are... um, uh, super excited to you know we've had uh, we've had Taylor Barretta from Adobe on who runs Adobe's Corp Dev, um, but uh, super excited to talk to you about kind of the uh, bridging this world between kind of the big technology companies and running Corp Dev there and strategic investments, but actually having gone and founded a startup yourself. Um, how uh, you know how, what's your perspective? What what kind of brought you back into Microsoft after? tasting the startup world. Right. Well, there's, uh, I think, a whole bunch of different ways to look at it. Uh, and, and you know, I think the the one thing that I, I certainly believe is that it actually has made me a better corp dev person uh, by far, having been on the other side, if you will. Uh, you know, talk about uh, empathy. Empathy uh, you know, for having, your customer. Yeah, and having, you know, had to raise money and, and uh, deal with uh, these discussions that, that happen between uh, strategic investors and acquirers. Raise money and, and, and sell partners. your company. All these things. Uh, and so, you know, just having, and, and then, you know, as a CFO, COO of a startup, having uh, been on the other side, both on the investing and acquiring side, I, I also, I think, I hope, avoided a lot of pitfalls and, and kept my, you know, cap table clean. And, you know, I knew a lot of things that I, I should be doing uh, that I think a lot of folks uh, can get trapped in. Um, and so, you know, I, I think having the, the diverse set of experiences is a great thing. And I wish uh, more folks in, in Microsoft and other big companies, as well as in startups, had, had that empathy. <laughs> to be able to uh, reach across the aisle. Um, and of course, now we're getting to politics and didn't mean to do that. But uh, <laughs> going back. Was uh, there an election this year? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I blocked uh, all out. Block, completely blocked. Uh, you know, one good example is, is in a startup, of course, you, know, you have trouble getting people to call you back. Right? You want to do partnerships, you want to <laughs> do fundraising, whatever it is. Or you're just out there trying to you know, make yourself known and, and actually do things. Uh, whereas in the big company, you almost have the opposite problem. Where you have too many people you have to deal with, <laughs> you know, and, and so uh, thinking specifically about M and A, uh, you know, I, I acquired a company uh, a few years ago uh, that was about twenty five people, and I remember looking at at the conference call, um, you know, set up on my computer, and said you have twenty eight people on the call. <laughs> so to do the acquisition of twenty five people, I was talking to twenty eight <laughs> people. <laughs> um, was that, and was that a uh, just an internal Microsoft? Just call? an internal call, right? Oh, and and wow. you know, if, if you think about. You know, all the business owners plus their lawyers uh, in and outside of the company. Um, and it, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's a big effort. Now, you know, of course, the uh, that, that doesn't quite scale, right? And so even doing, say, an acquisition of LinkedIn, you don't necessarily have a much bigger team on the inside. Uh, but, you, you know, along with... 10,000 people. And... Exactly. Uh, well, yeah, definitely not. Uh, hopefully not. So you're, you're the head of strategic investments. To give a little bit of context to our listeners, can you explain what that uh, looks like organizationally inside of Microsoft and what the process looks like when when you're acquiring a company. Like, do you find the company and bring it in or does a business owner find the company and then loop you in to start the actual formal process? How, how does that look? The corporate development team uh, within Microsoft sits uh, under the CFO. Uh, and we manage Microsoft's balance sheet uh, activities. And so if you think about acquisitions, investments, divestitures, and joint ventures, uh, when, when we do these partnership uh, activities as it relates to the balance sheet, that's where corporate development gets involved. Um, and the the kind of how we find companies or, or, or uh, find our targets and, and have these discussions uh, is 
is really, it's a mix, although it's typically driven by our business groups in terms of the finding of the companies. And, and that is because our product teams, they know their, they know their markets much better than we do. And, and certainly at Microsoft, we have such a broad-based business in so many different areas, it would be really difficult for the central team to be all-knowing, right? <laughs> You'd I have mean, to in be any a given space. Well, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I mean, you guys obviously have these extensive maps of, of different spaces and it's constantly evolving and you have new players coming on board and, and in any given little micro area, you might have, you know, 10, 15, 100 companies, right? Yep. Uh, and so if you think about that at the Microsoft scale across all of our products, you know, you'd be looking at a really complex uh, diagram. And, and so it's really impossible for a central team to keep up with all of that. And so we really rely on the business groups um, to think about what's in their space uh, as they think about their roadmaps. Uh, and most of the M&A, I mean, obviously the, the headlines go to, to LinkedIn and, and the large size uh, acquisitions we do, but, but most of our acquisitions tend to be much smaller uh, and are really driven by those product roadmaps in terms of, of where there are holes and, and what they need to fill and, and where, they're, where they're going. And, and so those are, are really just square up the center of, uh, of where the product teams are thinking. Yeah. I'm curious to kind of go back to you know, the fact that you have kind of actually been a founder in a startup and a successful one, you know, that raised money and then was acquired and, and then did M&A at Microsoft before and then came back to do it again. Uh, how did it change your perspective? Like, are there particular things that you're more acutely aware of now or that you think about differently than before? And because when you joined before, uh, I think you, you'd been an investment banking analyst, right? Mm -hmm. As many yep. folks who come into M&A roles at, at companies have been, um, which speaking from experience myself, you know, that's pretty far from actually being a founder of a startup. Uh, yep. So how how'd the perspective change? Yeah, well, you know, when I got to Microsoft, I mean, even when I was doing investment banking, I was thinking, uh, you know, it, it's you're almost too removed from what's actually happening on the ground in, in terms of doing something, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of advising and, and moving things you know, uh, around the chessboard, but you're not actually doing anything, producing anything. You're not building the chess pieces. Exactly. And, and so, you know, in investment banking, that's why I joined Microsoft because I thought, wow, I, I, I really want to get into an operating role in a company. Um, and, and that seemed like a good path to do it. And this was, you know, back in 1999, right at the height of the dot-com boom. Uh, where you know, everything was was kind of going a little crazy, and and my thought at the time was, you know, this this is going to end some, somewhat soon, most likely, um, and, and I want to go <laughs> get myself positioned in a place where where I could actually, you know, still have a job in a year Take and a seat and actually the music stops, yeah, yeah, and and actually learn something from it, uh, and and so that's where that Microsoft job seemed really appealing, and, and I'd never been to Seattle and hadn't really thought too much about about coming here to do that, but uh, but it worked out nicely. Uh, and you know we were super active in those early days, um, and then uh, and then I got here and and uh, and did did a lot of fun things and actually helped create an internal startup at the time. I was advising uh, the Windows and, and our kind of infrastructure teams, enterprise teams, on uh, security, storage management, and, and those types of systems. And, and uh, we started the security business group um, oh, cool. back then. Yeah, and so what, I joined uh, that team. Is that what became Windows Defender? Uh, eventually became Defender and a whole bunch of other things. And, and uh, you know, one of the first things we did was acquire, uh, you know, at the time, anti-spyware, anti-virus technologies yep. uh, and, and roll those in along with some stuff that we built. Um, and, and so I joined this startup group and, and uh, realized, hey, I really like this startup thing, but doing it within Microsoft um, was was not quite what <laughs> what I uh, had in mind. Uh, and you know, I saw the, you know, the pros and cons of that and, and thought it would be really great to go and, and actually do it for real. 
Uh, and so actually, uh, there was a company I, I co-founded before Ontella, uh, which was at the time known as Genesis uh, and then became Plectix Biosystems. Uh, and, and there was a Microsoft co-founder uh, that, that I met uh, and we went out and raised money for that company. Um, and then I left that company after about a year after we got it funded uh, and joined up with Dan and Charles where we uh, founded Ontella. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, kind of that pathway and what I realized was kind of taking the, the business knowledge and the corrupt dev knowledge and just general finance and business and strategy thinking, um, you know, and work with some really great technical and product folks, uh, was really a nice, uh, a nice combination. Uh, and so that was kind of that role that I took on as, you know, kind of founder and then evolving into, you know, CFO, COO. I'm curious, you're kind of getting into your specific role, uh, which I assume probably takes much, if not most of your time these days in, in the investment side. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that function at Microsoft and how, and uh, Microsoft just relaunched Microsoft ventures, which is early stage investing kind of more traditional VC type stuff you do later stage, larger checks, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, that's actually probably gone through more of a significant evolution, uh, than the, the core M&A role has, you know, in, in those three uh, epics. So, you know, kind of in that dot-com timeframe, uh, Microsoft was very active as an investor. Uh, and, and in those days, you know, every company was going public, you know, a year after they were founded. Uh, and right. so one the, of the, the Series B round was your IPO. Pretty much. And, and what was um, commonly accepted as, as one requirement of your IPO, it, it wasn't revenue, <laughs> uh, but it was uh, it was actually having a strategic investor. And so, you know, kind of the, the name brands uh, of your investors uh, lent a lot of strength to your IPO and, and, those and without days, anything right? else. When the number one VC question was, what are you going to do when Microsoft enters your space, right? <laughs> that's that's right. And, and so... You know, Cisco, Microsoft, you know, kind of the big companies at the time uh, were investing a lot in a lot of different startups. Um, and we were also investing. It was, you know, it was a, a really interesting time uh, in terms of influence and how the world was going to uh, play out. And so we were investing in, you know, undersea fiber cables and s- satellite companies and, mm-hmm. and cable companies and telcos and DSL coming, you name it. Uh, and so we were really spreading around a lot of money. Um, and and that didn't end so well. <laughs> uh, you know, we... we uh, we didn't really get the strategic return. And, and of course, you know, from a Microsoft perspective, uh, despite having a, a nice balance sheet, our investors aren't investing in us as an investor. They're investing in us as an operating company who's delivering you know, revenues and profits to, to our shareholders. And so, you know, even if you take a billion dollars of our balance sheet and turn it into two billion, three billion, five billion, you know, it, it doesn't really impact your stock price in the same way as, as doubling, tripling revenue. Uh, and, and profit. And so we, you know, we, we weren't, so the reason to do it was, was really strategic reasons of how are you going to take those investments and turn that into, to leverage plays on increasing revenue and, and, uh, and profit for the company. And that didn't really happen. Uh, and, and so we, we really stopped doing it uh, for the most part throughout the 2000s. Uh, and, you know, I think one notable exception was our investment in Facebook back in 2007. Um, right. and, and so what we did do is we said, you know, where it's really, really deeply strategic, we'll go out and we'll do an investment. Uh, and that's what we did in Facebook's case. Uh, but otherwise, we weren't really doing this, you know, kind of, hey, we'll put some money in our balance sheet, we're a partner, and why not yep. um, kind of, kind of thing. Was- the the face just quick sidebar. I mean, the Facebook yeah. investment at the time, the world thought you guys were crazy, right? Like, yeah, was it oh, they were, they were nuts. Billion dollar That's valuation, right. I believe. And That's uh, right. I think uh, their last round had been done at five, uh, five billion, and so we we took it up to fifteen. Um, 
and yeah, they, they certainly ridiculed us at the time, obviously in hindsight, that, that did okay. Turned yeah. out pretty well, yeah. And I remember when I was there, that, that began, um, or this was, uh, this was after the investment, but um, there was a lot of integrations. Like the companies were very yeah. friendly with each other. It was uh, when Windows Phone was kind of uh, uh, doing a lot of things differently than, than iOS and Android were doing and um, kind of like integrating across networks. There was a lot of like um, kind of proprietary first party type integration with, with Facebook and the contacts and, and providing Bing back to them for mapping things. And there was, there was like a very tight integration there. So I can, I can totally see what you're talking about on the strategic side. Yeah, and and that was that was exactly that case, right? Where we could really deeply align with with a, a partner and and do the investment, uh, you know, create this whole win win uh, scenario. I think, you know, coming back to to investments, um, you know, they're often talked about as a, you know, kind of either or, you know, hey, you can acquire us or you can invest in us, you know, and and uh, and, and I don't really think they operate that way as as really you know, substitutable goods. Uh, well, because you know, as a as a minority, uh, oh, completely. Like, speaking as a shareholder in lots of startups, yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Very different if you know you create an exit for the company versus just put more money into the company. That's that's absolutely right. And, and if you think about it, again, coming back to the strategic angle of it, um, you know, if we own you know five percent, two percent, ten percent, even twenty percent, even with a board seat of any given startup, uh, we really don't have any control. <laughs> Uh, right, and, right. and we don't really have really anything. Um, you know, yes, you have some, some equity and that's, that's obviously nice, but again, that's not really what we're here for. We're here to, to be partners. Wall Street isn't compensating, isn't, that's right. Wall Street isn't, uh, evaluating the Microsoft share price based on how good you are as an investor. That's absolutely correct. Uh, um, yeah, that, that's, that's like a fascinating, uh, taking a step back for our listeners and, and thinking about, um, how we normally, uh, evaluate companies on these episodes being an LP, or let's say you're a venture capital firm and you have LPs, the pressure on you and the expectation is very different than being an operating company with shareholders. Like the they're, the shareholders are looking for multiples that come from um, your your operations and your ability to um, execute core business activities in a sustainable way. And when LPs are are in a fund, you know they're in it for for ten years. They're looking for three three times or so the the uh, capital that they put in, hopefully more. But really, it's like, can you guys sustainably make these investments? And I think as an operating company, that's just not to your point. It doesn't move the share price. It's it's not the it core business. That's right. And and yeah, you know, from an, from an employee perspective, I mean, take this all the way down to the, the individual practitioners in any given corporate fund. And again, you can you know for any of you who are talking to different uh, corporate investors, you know, ask them how they get compensated, right? And, and most likely, if it's your typical corporate VC, uh, and it's a balance sheet activity, they're, they're employees of the company, right? And their, yeah. their compensation is going to come in, you know, shares and bonuses and, and salary uh, from the operations of that company. It's not coming from, you know, whether or not you succeed, yep. <laughs> whereas obviously a VC investor is in a different place. And, and so, uh, you know, that's why you think you have to be really careful in this world of, of strategic investing yeah. and, and coming back to why we do it. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, with all that context and having done it in the past and realized it didn't work, how, what's the philosophy this time around? 
Yeah, and, and when you say it doesn't work, I mean, I think you have to be careful in, in terms of work to do what, right? And, right? and so if your objective is is these really deep strategic tie-ups and or a return on your capital uh, or both, right? I mean, I think it's it's kind of hard to do both at the same time. Uh, and, and you think about, you know, setting valuation and being a difficult, um, you know, investor. Sometimes you have to have hard conversations uh, as an investor with uh, with your, your companies. And, and you think about, obviously, the hardest one that a board might have to do, which is uh, changing out a CEO. Um, you know, as a partner, as a strategic investor, we're not good at that, right? right? I mean, we, we 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 certainly don't want to ever have to turn to our partner and say, you know, by the way, um, you 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 founder, you CEO, you're you're not right for this company anymore as an investor. Uh, or also and, even you know, I mean, there's so many whole set of difficult conversations that come along with being an investor in companies. But you know, one in particular I'm thinking about is. Uh, hey, now is actually the right time to sell the company. To sell the company, um, to to fold the company, acquire as well. Then <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and, and so there's a lot of conflict there, um, and and it's why you know I think it, if if you want to do strategic investing the right way, you have to be really clear on what your objectives are and, and why you're doing it, or or you create lots of conflict, and in many cases that can backfire. Uh, and, and certainly something we want to be very cognizant of is our reputation among investors, among founders, and and uh, and technologists is, is we never. You know, we never want to damage our reputation as a good partner, as a good technology company, uh, in order to achieve those investment returns, uh, because obviously that's that's penny wise, pound foolish for us. So, would you say the effort is more around creating um, like strategic partnerships through investment rather than investment to generate returns? Well, so it's it's the way we've scoped it, uh, and there's actually two components to this. One of them is, is relatively new, which as of earlier this year, we created Microsoft Ventures, uh, which is an early stage venture effort. Uh, and so Microsoft Ventures is out there looking for um, you know companies that are in 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 generally our strategic uh, partnership ecosystem, and, and they're looking to establish those relationships, uh, starting with that uh, with that equity check and, and developing a relationship. Uh, and so they're they're out there looking on the come, and, you know, and, and if you're using a craps analogy, and so the uh, you know the fact is that the early stage, uh, you know, kind of your your seed, your A type stage uh, investment, it's it's hard to be a meaningful strategic partner to Microsoft because our our scale, right? It, it's really hard to do. Um, now you can be a potentially really interesting strategic partner, uh, and, and so that's what Microsoft Ventures is there to do, which is to create those relationships and those opportunities and and uh, and be in those conversations around. Um, around how we can add value to uh, to companies. In some cases, that's going to come with that equity check and then a partnership. In some cases, uh, it'll come just from the partnership, but they're there to, to have those conversations. Uh, on on my side of the house, uh, it's it's almost the opposite, where I'm leaning into companies that are already Microsoft partners uh, and and that are mm-hmm. deep, meaningful ones. Uh, and it's it's uh, we're doing you know call it five to ten of them a year, uh, and it's really more of uh, you know an endorsement and ecosystem leverage and and tightening that relationship um, as opposed to uh, you know trying to find new and interesting uh, partnership opportunities. Uh, and so that's why I'm I'm more of a growth investor, if you will, because these companies tend to be a little bit bigger, a little more mature. Yep. And, and are these companies like, like for instance, that might be selling through the Microsoft Salesforce on the enterprise side already? Yes. And, and so we typically look, and obviously we have lots of partners, um, and and, uh, and those partnerships uh, come in, in, you know, when I look at a strategic investment, really three, three criteria uh, at its core. One is uh, on the partnership side, uh, is there a really interesting, you know, technology product integration uh, between the two companies that makes this really interesting. Uh, 
and then the second piece, is there some sort of go-to-market sales marketing motion uh, that makes the combination of the partnership powerful? And where I find really interesting uh, components of both, right? Because there are plenty of companies that have one or the other. Uh, but when you find a really, really impactful uh, combination of those two things, uh, that's where it gets more interesting as a strategic investment. Uh, and then the, the last part, the third part is, is it a good investment? Uh, and, and just like any kind of growth investor will monitor a portfolio, uh, you know, based on expected returns and, and make financially sound investments in those meaningful partners. As as I have to imagine, as much as Wall Street won't reward you for being a great investor, uh, Amy Hood, Microsoft CFO, might punish you for being a bad investor. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, that, that's again why um, why we we tend you know not to to do this you know in a hugely active way. I mean, again, I'm not out there spraying billions of dollars of our balance sheet money around because that that really just creates a huge liability. And so we do it uh, you know where it's meaningful, where it makes sense, and where we think we're going to get a reasonable financial return. Uh, that's you know risk based. Uh, and so over the last uh, two years, since we you know kind of done the, started doing this in a programmatic way. Uh, we've uh, done about 16 investments, uh, investing about 250 million uh, on on this side of, of the house, on the growth side. Uh, you know, Microsoft Ventures has a, a separate portfolio they're managing. That's a great transition. We um, we want to uh, move into talking about the state of the M and A market right now at large, and yep. uh, it's it's um, you talking about uh, number of deals is a great segue into why have we seen so much deal activity this year, both large and small? And and the largest of which being, obviously, you guys. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And, LinkedIn. and those are, again, you know, as we look at M&A, um, they, are, they are different. And, and we're always looking for great opportunities for us to grow. Uh, and, and so, you know, the question of, uh, you know, th- those large companies, uh, we're, we're always evaluating everything, right? Uh, and the thing with the large companies, they, they tend not to be, you know, suddenly found opportunities. We, we do, right. we, we know about LinkedIn, we, we know they're there, you know, we, we know where all these large companies are, we know who they are. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so, you know, those are always being evaluated. And, and obviously, when, you know, something happens, whether, you know, w- something flips between, you know, day one and day two, where we decide, okay, now it's the time to, to acquire Skype, now it's the time to acquire LinkedIn. Um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of things that go into that. Uh, and in terms of your, you're asking about the trends you know, right now. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there's anything on our side of the house um, that that makes this a better time or, or um, more exciting time to acquire. I'd say it's almost on the opposite side, where you know it might be a really good time to sell. <laughs> and so there's a lot more companies that are are trying to market mm-hmm. themselves uh, in that way. Um, and, and if you think about the the technology cycle uh, and you know kind of the how things get funded and how technology moves in waves uh, and and how startups get funded, um, you know there's certainly a lot of companies that are you know, kind of coming to be a no man's land uh, in terms of their growth relative to the last round, relative to their you know, ability to raise more money, uh, and and really kind of reach escape velocity into independent land, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of companies that are, are certainly looking to sell. Um, do, do you think that's motivating? Uh, it, let, let's zoom out from Microsoft and look at the industry at large. That's motivating why so many deals are getting done, because companies are so much better at marketing themselves as, as a great pickup. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if they're better at marketing themselves, but uh, they they need to. <laughs> they need to be right. I mean, uh, you know, if, if your next funding round isn't going to come, yeah, um, you've got to do something, right? I mean, you've either got to fund through cash flow or you got to to fund through investment. And, and uh, if you can't 
you know, raise your revenues enough relative to your burn. And, and if you can't, um, you know, raise investment, then you really have one choice. Two choices. One is happier well, right. than the other. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Good. Fair point. Uh, I'm talking about the companies that actually have something, right? And, yeah. and so, you know, th- there will be a price um, for, yeah. for companies that actually have have something, right? So uh, how do you, and, I'm, I'm curious on that front, the, the fact of life in startups is um, unfortunately more companies than not end up in that situation, um, you know, where, uh, they've built something, you know, they built a product, it's getting usage, they have revenue, uh, but it's either uh, not going to get to a scale where they can cover their burn and thus the company has faces the prospect of going out of business or, or we see this plenty of times too. The business grows to a certain scale, it becomes profitable, but then the growth just stalls and mm-hmm. you're, you're, you realize you're not going to get to a point where you could be a standalone independent company. I'm curious for you guys, like, you probably see these companies, you know, many times a week. Um, how do you think about whether they make sense, whether an asset like that makes sense for you? Yeah, well, it, it goes back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of who's driving that decision. And, and it's, um, you know, and again, different companies are different here, right? And so we are typically a, a product-driven company uh, when it comes to M&A and comes to our business generally. And so we're not out there looking to assemble in, in kind of business conglomerate sense an amalgamation of random software companies. Uh, and so you, you could certainly have that kind of business, right, where you go out and find interesting software companies that then you can, through synergies of, of overhead and sales and other things, can can make good money at. Uh, we're not really in that game. You know, we're, we're here to, to grow our, our franchises and, and our products and, and really be a leading technology company. And so we're looking uh, really at our technology roadmap. Uh, and, and saying where things need to fit in, which is partly why we're we're less of that opportunistic buyer yep. uh, that's out there, kind of just buying companies that that have you know fallen uh, fallen angels, if you will. Now, there's still plenty of fallen angels that we that are interesting to us, uh, but you know, but it's more those two things are different. Yes, it's yeah, related it's to the roadmap, and so where those two things intersect, where you have a fallen angel that's on a roadmap, that that's where things get exciting for us. Um, and you know, the other piece of that, uh, again, from a Microsoft perspective is we're typically not looking to acquire businesses. We are typically looking to acquire teams and and products and technologies. Um, and and again, thinking about that roadmap piece where holes are in the roadmap, um, you know, we, we sell the office suite. Um, and so where things can plug into that, that's great. But if we're acquiring a business, uh, you know, sometimes that's oftentimes that's incompatible with with selling as the suite. Uh, and so, in some cases, actually having a large sales force and a large business could be actually value destructive yeah. uh, relative to how we think about things. And, and so, there's there's plenty of companies that are great, but because they have such infrastructure and raise such money, uh, that it actually takes it out of our our ability to really find any interesting you know, intersection of of deal value relative to what they need and want to sell for. Wow, that's 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 fascinating to think about the the conflicts there because we um, listeners of the show who have uh, kind of listened to our our more classic analyze a single acquisition episodes um, will remember that we we analyze whether a an acquisition was technology product business line people asset or other and we've got uh-huh. these kind of categories and it's interesting to think about if it's a business line that can't be incompatible with the existing business line of the the acquirer if the acquirer is not looking to create a conglomerate right of of like yep. separate and potentially even competitive businesses under the same management structure so for you guys i you know i uh, when when um we did the linkedin episode we were looking at um you know it was like an 8x multiple of revenue uh, that, that LinkedIn was acquired for. And we were like, well, you know, it's actually a pretty good business on its own, even if there aren't a lot of synergies and integrations. 
And it's interesting to think about like you, you sort of pushing back on that notion of like, no, we don't just buy businesses because they're good businesses. And like, you know, we hope to cash flow them for the long term. It's actually a strategic integration and they have to be compatible with our existing business. That's right. Now, now, obviously, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, you look at the larger businesses we buy, um, you know, like a Yammer or like a, a Mojang on the Minecraft side or, or like yep. a, a LinkedIn, um, you know, generally you're, you're, you know, to make those deals work, you're generally not going to destroy their business. Uh, <laughs> and so if you have enough critical mass and it makes sense on, on the strategic side, that's, you know, it's, it's a different game too. Um, and so, you know, all these things do fit together and, and every deal is different. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm just saying on the whole, when we're thinking about these things, uh, you know, the, those are some of the, the things we think about and consider is, is, you know, how does that business play, as you said, with, with our existing business? Is, is that something that we value or, or something that we don't? Or in some cases, something that actually is a cost to us. One uh, kind of tying together both of these topics on um, growth and sort of the um, the roadmap and strategic imperative for Microsoft uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum a trend that's emerged or reemerged in 2016. And I'm curious your take on and whether you talk to these guys is the, the appearance of private equity in the, um, in the software market uh, and sort of the P fueled uh, or P led buyouts of software companies. Um, how much, you know, in, in many ways, that's the exact opposite of what you're talking about. <laughs> that is the, um, you know, if, if not, in some cases, an attempt to create a, a conglomerate uh, of multiple software companies together. But in other cases, just, um, you know, hey, we're, we're just going to take this private solely for its own business line. Um, why do you think we've seen that emerge? Because traditionally, PE has shied far away from technology. These are typically not cash flow positive companies. You can't put debt on them. Um, what's changed? Well, I think I think that has changed, right? I think there are a lot of now mature um, software companies that have legacy businesses uh, mm-hmm. where where you have nice cash flow. And you know, if you think about your typical technology company's business where you know, a lot of money goes to R&D because you're always trying to grow uh, and, and chase the next next generation, uh, if you strip out all that cost, in some cases, you can have a really nice profitable business because the marginal cost of producing and selling software is, is relatively low. Or I should say the cost of producing is relatively low. The cost of selling, it can be mm-hmm. high. But um, you know, yes. where, where you find that, that right um, that right model where where if you strip out a lot of costs from the business and you you think you have this pretty solid revenue stream from customers that that you know even if you don't invest is just going to fade out over time um, you can actually have some really nice traditional looking lbos uh, and so we've certainly seen that um, those you know those aren't always so exciting to us uh, but you know, we, we actually have co-invested uh, with some private equity firms in a few of these uh, take privates or LBOs or, or um, you know, re, resettlings. Uh, and uh, the one that was announced is uh, Informatica, uh, where Primera uh, bought them, yep. uh, and we, uh, we invested in that. Uh, and, and what's actually exciting about that one is there's a component of that business um, you know, that is legacy, but there's also a really good growth component to it, uh, which is what gets us excited. And the opportunity to really go deep in a partnership with them was what got us excited about the partnership and the uh, and the investment. And, you know, kind of on the quarter to quarter basis, uh, sitting under a public company, you know, street mentality of, of managing that, uh, it's often hard for them to really make the hard decisions and the, the both the cuts as well as the investments uh, that they need to make to, to kind of modernize that company. Uh, and so in many cases, it's better suited in a private 
you know, kind of private equity based um, format. And, and so that that can actually be really interesting and really exciting. And there's certainly a lot of those businesses that are uh, that are out there. I just want to highlight real quick for listeners, because I, uh, I'll admit, I just Googled it. LBO is a leverage buyout. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yes. No, no, no problem at all. It's, it's interesting. Uh, it's funny. We, we've got a good mix of uh, yeah. kind of like product and, and engineering types that listen to the show, as well as people that are uh, kind of much more versed in the, the corporate development and, and financial world. And I, I tend to uh, uh, perhaps over-index on hey, being a recovering investment banker myself. <laughs> I, I just imagine everybody knows these things. But yeah, uh, and and typically, you know, um, the reason we're, we're talking about this is it's only been very recently that um, private equity firms and LBOs have really started paying attention to tech. And yep. Brian, for really, really the reasons that you were saying that the industry's matured, um, but typically these these firms would buy, you know, um, like you know Heinz ketchup, right? The right, the, right. the types of things that yep. Berkshire Hathaway would buy. Are exactly, the types it's more Warren Buffett that, style in a way. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and, and actually, I mean, it was back when I was an investment banker. Um, that uh, Silver Lake, uh, which I think was the first true private equity, traditional private equity tech-focused firm was formed. Uh, and I remember meeting with them thinking, you know, how odd, right? I mean, it, it really, this, this, these two models are somewhat incompatible. But certainly over time uh, and being the first, they, they were able to create a really nice business uh, to, to go and, and take that traditional private equity model uh, into uh, into tech, and, and now there are a whole bunch of other folks that uh, play in that space as well. Yeah, I think in in quite short order, I forget it, maybe two years, they three xed Skype before uh, before yep. selling it That's to right. Microsoft. Pretty, That's right. Pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, yep. Which obviously then that was a, uh, a a tech buyout that you played on on the other side. <laughs> yep. Um, oh, that's right. This is actually a pretty good uh, segue. So on the Skype episode, we talked a lot about um, the the implications of ha- having a lot of cash overseas, and that um, you know Skype was a, actually a really great way to deploy some of that capital um, because it would have a pretty heavy tax burden when when uh, attempting to repatriate it. And so the question for you is: are, are potentially changing corporate and foreign tax structures on your mind as you think about large deals? Um, yeah, we're, uh, we're we're certainly always cognizant of the uh, you know, regulatory regimes and tax, regi- uh, tax regimes. Um, you know, most of these larger acquisitions, um, you know, have a, a large and complex international component to it, uh, which means we're dealing with that anyway, um, you know, even at the kind of more operating internal level uh, of any given, you know, company. I mean, if you look at, uh, um, you know, at Skype, if you look at LinkedIn, if you look at a whole bunch of, you know, they, they all have you know, pretty complex operations uh, that you've got to think about. Uh, you know, uh, Skype, of course, happened to be domiciled, not in the U.S. Uh, and so that was certainly a nice benefit that we were certainly aware of. Uh, but, you know, the, these things are, are always changing. And, and um, you know, if you think about you know, from the Microsoft overall planning perspective of, of how we manage those those uh, those environments, uh, it really has to sit within uh, you know, our, our, our overall uh, management. And, and again, these things get really complex in terms of where IP lives. Uh, you know, Apple and others have been in the news a lot lately in terms of, of how they do those transfers of, of tech mm-hmm. uh, and, and how that you know, creates or avoids or, or distributes their taxes in different ways. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, again, it's, it's a very complex issue that we, we certainly pay a lot of attention to. Um, I, again, I wouldn't say that 
going back to, to why we why we do M and A in the first place. Uh, we we certainly aren't financial engineers as a as a business, <laughs> uh, and so we're, we're you know always looking out for the right strategic thing. And if, if that deal happens to be Skype that's based outside the U.S., or if that deal happens to be uh, you know LinkedIn that's based here in the U.S., um, you know we go do the right deal. Um, you know, assuming we can come up with the right you know terms and structures that that makes the deal work. Um, and, and so we're, we're we're not out there to be financial engineers. So that's certainly a part of what we have to do. You know, just given the the complexity of, of operations of these companies. I was always uh, I was always amazed when I worked in banking, like <laughs> how many tax lawyers we had running around on every deal. But yeah, it's certainly part of those twenty eight people I discussed earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In thinking about sort of the two different functions, uh, you know, there, there's M and A activity when Microsoft acquires companies, and then there's strategic investment activity, which is what um, we've been talking a lot about on. on this episode where you choose to deploy capital into someone for for strategic reasons. Do you have any good examples of, uh, of investments that, that Microsoft has made in the last few years that um, you know ended up becoming product integrations or like uh, success stories for a business or some some payoff with that strategic alignment? Uh, yeah, in term, payoff in terms of um, maybe like you made the the strategic investment and then there was uh, something in the product in the ensuing years, either on on the Microsoft side or on that that company's side to um, that that took advantage of the the sort of strategic um, alignment between the companies. Yeah, sure. I mean, we can look at a couple of examples uh, in in the recent past that I've been uh, been involved with. Um, if you look at say uh, Foursquare. Uh, mm-hmm. We made an investment mm-hmm. in Foursquare, uh, and, and we've you know, developed a great partnership around their data uh, and data asset uh, that that feeds into Cortana. Oh, uh, interesting! And, and Very so cool. that's um, yeah, that that's uh, pretty cool. If you look at uh, a DocuSign, what, what does that look like with, uh, with with Foursquare? Is that like when when people ask Cortana about? Um, what's a good place to eat, and it, it, it surfaces recommendations from Foursquare data, or yeah, I mean Foursquare is one of the sets of data that that we leverage in that case. Yeah, uh, yeah, we certainly have a lot of our own uh, own data as well, and we pull data from multiple sources. But uh, you know, Foursquare has a great great set of data on yeah. uh, on and lots location. Of Foursquare and, and... data gets used in all sorts of location use cases that aren't even related to you know. That's right, and <laughs> yeah, in fact, and user um, recommendations. We were we were kind of a prototype for them doing that kind of deal, and now they've basically created a whole business out of licensing that data to, to, to others, mm. uh, which is part of our investment thesis in in that company. Um, and uh, then if you look at uh, DocuSign, uh, you know, we had a a, uh, it's a a different example, but we we've had a great partnership with them going back many years uh, in terms of how you could utilize their electronic signatures in Office three sixty five. Uh, there's some good selling and marketing motions that go along with that as well that go in uh, both directions. And, and we participated in their uh, their last uh, private round as well, long after the partnership itself had come to be. Uh, and then if you look at a more recent one, uh, which is Mesosphere, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. container space, uh, and, and we're you know, doing a whole bunch of interesting things, both with them and, and the other container players. Uh, and, and we really like that partnership as well, both on the technical and, and go-to-market side. Do you, yeah, do you ever see any sort of uh, conflicts arise where you want to uh, be horizontal and participate with everyone? Kind of, uh, let's just say it's all the container uh, players um, in a very democratic and open way, and yet you have this strategic bet that you've placed on one of them. Uh, we certainly do. I mean, you know, we 
I mean, obviously, it depends on the space in terms of, of how uh, how democratic you want to be, uh, if you will. Uh, but again, you know, we're we're first and foremost technology partners, and and uh, and the commercial deals will speak for themselves. And so, if we're going to go and and do some sort of exclusive or semi-exclusive, whether it be um, you know kind of implied or or, or purposeful uh, exclusivity in any given area, you know, the commercial partnership and and how we do that uh, and talk about it will. We'll mention that, and the investment is is again a separate a separate deal. Uh, and so, one good example there would be if you look at a company called Cloudflare that we invested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they actually uh, you know doing what they do, they they need to be and want to be you know kind of a, a neutral party. Uh, and and to do that and to hammer it home, uh, it was actually an interesting approach by that CEO founder to to use his investment round as a way to reinforce that message of neutrality. And so he got Baidu, uh, us, Qualcomm, and Google uh, all to co-invest together in the same round. Very interesting. Uh, and and so uh, you know you can use these investments as as tools. And and you know, again, given the the right commercial partnership, we certainly had no qualms with those guys as uh, as investors. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Maybe good uh, time to jump to, um, you know, we, we discussed with, with Taylor at Adobe when we chatted with him a few months ago, kind of what the right way was for startups to, you know, build a relationship over time with potential acquirers. Uh, and he really stressed the importance of, that it is a relationship, you know, don't expect that you're just going to call up, you know, a potential acquirer one day and have a deal done, you know, by the next week. Um, but I'm curious on the investing front, you know, for you guys, obviously, you, you know, different companies have different policies on on this and approaches to strategic investments. But but what's the what's the best way for an earlier mid-stage company to start building that relationship um, with uh, with Microsoft? 
Yeah, and I think you know, piling on with uh, with the Adobe guys on that, you know, it, it is amusing uh, or unamusing sometimes. Where you know, we'll get these calls saying, "Hey, you know, we have a term sheet in hand from X. Uh, you know, would you like to <laughs> to also put in a in a bid? Uh, you know, let us know within the next week uh, <laughs> to be acquired, right?" And and uh, and that's it's generally not very productive, <laughs> uh, and it, it is indeed a relationship. And and you know, the thing to think about as a startup founder is, is um, you know, getting acquired is, is almost like going through a hiring exercise. Uh, and, and you, you do have to develop relationship and trust. And essentially, the acquiring entity is indeed making a hiring decision, uh, you know, on the company as well as the specific people. And, and so, if you don't have a, a relationship in place, uh, it's really hard to to speed that through um, in, in a rapid way. And, and so, it's it's always a good idea to be developing those relationships with potential acquirers, um, you know, well in advance. And, and it leads into what I will say on the investing side, which is certainly on the, the strategic investing side for me, all those roads lead through a partnership anyway. Uh, and so you need to have that dialogue with us on the uh, partnership side with, the uh, with our product unit. teams. Yeah, with the business units and, and the product teams, um, you know, to, to get those partnerships in place uh, long before I could potentially invest. And, and uh, you know, and so that's that's really the best way to do it. And I'm always happy to, to help get folks set up with the right folks in Microsoft if they you know, don't have a path in otherwise. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's really what has to start. And, and certainly then, you know, as those, those conversations are going, uh, to then have a separate parallel relationship development with, uh, with my team, uh, is, is certainly not a bad thing. Um, but, you know, again, first and foremost, we're a technology partner and the investing thing is, is really secondary to everything we do. So, uh, you know, if, if there's limited resources, uh, in any given side, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother with me <laughs> as much as that hurts me to say, uh, but, you know, and really focus on those, those strong relationships on the product level. It's, it's also more leverage for them. I mean, if they can get a, a situation where, um, you know, there's cross selling motions, I mean, the Microsoft seal, you know, field and, and sales team is, is really powerful. And, and I've certainly seen a lot of startups get uh, a lot of leverage from that, uh, and if you can make that work, that's it's really impactful to uh, to a small company. Yeah, and uh, uh, <laughs> it's funny as we uh, anybody who's in the startup world knows um, it always just happens to work out that any time that you're very close to a major milestone, whether it be cementing a partnership with somebody like a Microsoft or a sales milestone it also just happens to be when you're running out of money <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and founders are tearing their hair out trying to balance the two of them yeah no i mean it's and it's i, I certainly don't mean to make light of that that really difficult challenge and i've, I've obviously been there uh and so one one philosophy though you know going back again uh to to our investing approach uh, you know we're not looking to make companies or make rounds uh, except in those you know, really uh, rare cases like the Facebook investment. Yep. Uh, and so we tend not to lead rounds, uh, and, and we tend to just put a little bit of money in. I mean, again, we're not looking to be the primary funding source here uh, in any given round or, or deal or company. And, and so, you know, we're not, you know, we're not your typical investor. We're, we're not going to jump in and save a company if they're running out of money. Uh, and so we're, we're the wrong folks to, uh, to rely on, uh, you know, on that basis, uh, anyway. Uh, and so the relationship can certainly be very helpful, uh, and, and both on the M&A front and the investment front for, for us to have that dialogue. That's, that's always a good thing. But, uh, you know, if, if, if the running out of money thing is, is something that you're, uh, trying to avoid, it's, it's usually not, uh, I'm not usually a good call to make. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. well, jumping back over to the M&A side of the house, uh, one of the theses of this show when we first set out was to figure out 
what makes acquisitions successful and self selfishly so that David and I can really understand how to build companies that will become um, successfully acquired and will fit into another business or more recently will actually have a successful IPO process. We realized that we yep. were we were selling ourselves short, but <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Our ambitions short. Right, right. In in that vein, I'm very curious how uh, on the MA side of the house at Microsoft do you judge acquisitions and do you decide if if this worked out well and we're glad that we did this five, ten years later? Yeah. Um, we, we certainly do. Uh, it, it's a really hard thing to do. Uh, and of course, the, the challenge there is that the destination is often changing as you're going through the process. And certainly <laughs> in tech, you know, two, five years hindsight wise, uh, things look a lot different than, yeah, maybe than, 10 than, is than they did initially. It's the wrong number here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, really, it's really difficult to think about how to judge an acquisition and, and whether it's successful or not um, on, on any really rigorous way in, in tech. Uh, you know, that said, we certainly try. Uh, and so with any given acquisition, uh, we'll have a set of agreed um, j- you know, judgment milestones, metrics, uh, you know, and various criteria, which, which usually include, you know, retention, you know, are all the folks or, or some folks of the, uh, the acquired company still here, you know, six months, one year, two years later, uh, are they happy? Um, you know, have we shipped X, Y, and Z product or feature? Have we done, you know, A, B, and C integration? Have we, you know, pick your, you know, the revenue targets or profit targets, or there's some sort of accelerated, um, you know, either schedules or unit volumes for some product or feature we have, you know, pick your set of things that form the basis for why we went and did a deal. Uh, and, and we lay that all out. Uh, and we, we cement that in and then we do track that. Uh, and then the owner, you know, someone in Microsoft owns that, you know, someone in the product team, uh, product teams owns that, that team and, and, and signed up for either that revenue or those features or, or retention or whatever it is. Uh, and so we certainly do, um, you know, judge those over time. Uh, and that's, you know, I think the closest we can get, you know, and again, even with that, we have to be cognizant of, of how things shift and change. And often that person might not be the same person who's managing them, you know, those acquired uh, employees six, 12, you know, 24 months later. Are there any that you think went particularly well in the last five years that, that are worth saying like, wow, that, that one went really phenomenally? Um, yeah, and no, I think there there certainly are, and and one thing I think that's um, that's fun to to watch is our changing approach to these things, um, and you know I think in a lot of companies, and and certainly in Microsoft, it it, uh, it used to be the case where you know let's say you're the um, you know product team for Outlook, uh, and you're trying to ship a mobile client, uh, and it's not going so well, uh, and then you you know, get management uh, uh, buy off to go buy by a mobile client, uh, in this case, maybe a company, let's mm-hmm. just say as an example. Uh, and, and then you, you bring those folks into the company and now that startup that you just acquired is reporting to the same people who were failing before. Um, that usually ended up being a recipe for, for <laughs> just not, not, a, let's just say that the acquired companies are more excited to be in that position. <laughs> let's say that the you know, managing, uh, folks there, you know, essentially, went and continued to try and do the same thing, but now just with new people working <laughs> for them. Uh, hmm. And so that usually didn't end well, surprisingly. Uh, and so, you know, I think with the Compli and with, with other companies we've acquired recently, uh, we, we've done that differently. Uh, and, and we've taken those folks and empowered them. And, and assuming they've been successful, we've continued to, to expand their scope and given them more and more. And, and so, 
uh, you know, I think you're you're seeing the benefit of that approach with uh, with Outlook uh, Mobile and iOS, um, and uh, and how that uh, how that's worked. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I think that's uh, that's a case where I think we're we're pretty excited. Uh, and and you could say the same thing thing for I think a lot of the other uh, companies we've acquired uh, recently. Yeah, it's interesting to. Um, I always love thinking about what those you know as the organization matures you know the corp dev organization matures or um you know from my world you know as a vc firm grows and sees many cycles and as individuals uh within those organizations grow you know you you start to learn these uh, you know vc is all about pattern matching but um mm-hmm. you you get these you know sort of senses that develop and kind of informal rules and then what's really interesting is when you decide to break the rules um but i'm thinking about like uh you know one that um actually be relevant to my carve out uh, you know in vc that you learn pretty quickly is it's really hard to build a big company if you're not targeting a big market <laughs> and uh, yep. plenty you know i make that mistake madrona makes that mistake even the other great vc firms make that mistake all the time mm-hmm. um but uh and then you always remind you like god why did i do that you know <laughs> uh but um but you know for for you and for microsoft now you know for decades uh having been able to practice the craft of you know of MA and i think about you know vc is the same way um you definitely get these you know these rules that kind of evolve like oh yeah maybe we shouldn't uh if we're buying a product to replace one that's failing we probably shouldn't have them report to people who are who are who are um not successfully shipping the current product no that's right yeah um one final note kind of before we move into follow-ups hot takes and carve outs are there any other people or companies who you admire that you think do corporate development or strategic investing really well? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, mean, you know, I think you see lots of different models. Um, if we're talking about just the investing side, um, you know, and, and Google has taken the approach of, of creating a separate fund uh, and a whole separate team and, and creating those walls and trying to create a real VC. Uh, and I think that's certainly one one way to go, and and the market will will judge over time if they're doing a good job with that or not. And, and they're essentially out there competing with any other VC mm-hmm. uh, for uh, for dollars. Um, you know that can take away some of the strategic components to it uh, too. Uh, and and so there's you know all sorts of uh, views on the spectrum. You know, corporate VC has gotten you know, I think really hot uh, for some reason over the last uh, number of years, and, and just about everyone I think I was reading today. Um, that uh, you know, you have a, I think it was Tyson Foods. You know, the folks who make chicken, uh, they now have a VC uh, looking at uh, new protein replacement <laughs> uh, opportunities. Sweet, yeah. I mean, so, you know, Sesame Street has a VC. You know, pretty much everyone has a VC yeah. these days, right? I've, I've been amazed. Uh, I mean, it's been so much talked about uh, in the last couple of years. But you, know, you drive around in Silicon Valley and you see all the auto companies have their uh, yeah, you know, Silicon Valley centers now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I did a deal recently with GE and Caterpillar and and others. I mean, it you know, kind of, uh, you know, everybody's getting into the game, and, and I think that's going to be interesting to watch over time. And, and so, to kind of flip your question, um, you know, kind of, I, I think there's a lot of folks who I'm not sure if they're doing it right, and, and we'll we'll have to see. Uh, and, and again, going back to why these folks are setting it up and, and what they think they're going to get out of it. And, and as a former startup founder, uh, you know, certainly at the early stage. Um, 
you know, certainly have to be careful about tying your your wagon to uh, to really anyone, because uh, you, know, you you want to maintain optionality at, at the yeah. early stage if you can, uh, and so that's a, a hard thing to balance against uh, the the corporate entities and, and keeping in mind what we already talked about in terms of their incentives, which is really for their company and their equity versus versus a traditional investor who's really you know looking to you <laughs> to make a gain, uh, and those incentives are very different, uh, and, and that manifests itself in the boardroom, that manifests itself in, in shareholder votes and. and for, you know, follow-on rounds and, and all sorts of things that um, yeah, I think folks are going to have to be uh, be careful of. So I think there's you know a whole bunch of folks who are out there doing uh, you know doing a good job. Uh, you know, Qualcomm Ventures certainly does, and, and I think uh, Google has a pretty good reputation. And Salesforce is very active, yeah. uh, and we've co-invested with them before. Um, so I've been very impressed with a lot of the teams I've I've seen in corporate VC, um, and uh, and, and yeah, again we'll have to see uh, how how the whole space uh, shapes out. Indeed. Indeed. Should we uh, do follow-ups and hot takes? Yeah, let's do it. We've got some fun ones. I I realized um, we were negligent uh, last episode on the Marvel episode and uh, didn't discuss, I believe, uh, we discussed Snapchat's, Snap Inc.'s uh, Spectacle launch uh, mm-hmm. and initial very positive reviews. I can't wait to try them. Um, but we did not discuss the elephant in the room, which is IPO. Uh, news that they are rumored to be preparing to file for an IPO. Yeah, uh, really interesting to think about. They're a younger company than um, Uber and a lot of these other kind of like super unicorns. Yep. Um, and uh, in, in true Snapchat fashion, just not necessarily going with the trend. Like the, yeah. the, they just continually think of themselves as a different company uh, or a different type of company than a lot of these other um, other big companies, big private companies of their generation. And so I think... Um, you know, it, there are reasons why it makes more sense for for Snapchat to be IPOing and companies like Uber to be waiting. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, Uber in China. I think is kind of the the big reason they're waiting. But um, with uh, with Snapchat, I continue to be impressed, and I'm uh, a buy at any price. <laughs> <laughs> but don't take note my, to self: don't do not give money to Ben. Yeah, yeah, don't take my investment <laughs> advice. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, also really interesting with Snapchat, I mean, uh, one, you know, to kind of as we talked about on the Facebook IPO show um, and then afterward as well, um, I think it's great to see a company that is four years old, uh, but clearly has achieved scale and is in the process of building a meaningful uh, revenue um, business and, and eventually hopefully profits as well. Um take this step and do this. Yep. Um, They've achieved domestic scale. I'm very curious to see how they do internationally yep. as they really start to, to expand there. Because I think, um, you know, what we keep seeing uh, Instagram copy a lot of Snapchat's functionality. And uh, if you're already an avid Snapchat user, you often are, are not really compelled by the Instagram features. You're like, yeah. I can already have my network, my habits. But then you think about all these people that are in countries where Snapchat hasn't gotten big yet. And the, now that sort of the question is, will Snapchat ever get big in those countries since um, since Instagram kind of has a lot of that functionality yeah. now and they already use Instagram all the time? And I'm still bullish because I, I this is one of those like uh, sort of seed company bets where you just say, yeah, I wouldn't bet against that person. And like I want to I, I, I have a lot of faith in their ability to figure that out. And that's how I feel about Evan Spiegel and uh, the, the kind of leadership at Snapchat. But um, I I think it's important to like note a risk that they've achieved yep. domestic scale, and we'll see how they do. 
Well, it'll yeah. be a very interesting S one to read. Yeah, totally. no matter what. Yeah, what? Oh, the the rest of the business section is going to be yeah. awesome. <laughs> uh, I'm curious. Uh, I don't think Microsoft is a shareholder in uh, Snap Inc., um, but uh, Alphabet, uh, Google, Alphabet is, um, as are several other strategic companies. I'm kind of curious, Brian. Like when when you guys have had investments uh, that then go public. What do you guys do with the stock? Yeah, we uh, we depends on the situation, uh, and we we generally don't comment on what we do with it. Uh, and this goes back to to the whole question around how how and why we're doing strategic investing is is um, you know selling a partner uh, is, is usually a really difficult thing to do uh, because of what it, you know. And so we, we generally just don't talk about these things. Uh, and so, you know, people will ask, Hey, you know, Facebook, have you sold your stock? And, and we just don't answer. Um, and, uh, and it's for good reason, which is, uh, you know, assuming we're under the threshold, of course, for, yep, for yep, uh, having to, to be, uh, yep. yeah, then uh, there's really no benefit whatsoever to talking, you know, talk about how we, how and what we're doing with those, uh, those stakes, um, yeah. that are put which in place. Which is actually interesting, you know, uh, something that, um, I didn't realize even until I'd been working in venture for quite a number of years, but I think most people don't realize about the VC ecosystem. It's actually kind of the same thing. Um, you know, when companies go public, like it's not like there's a magic moment and like we sell all our shares. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, oftentimes we can, even if we wanted to. Uh, and so, um, you have VC firms that are holding shares of companies that went public long ago, uh, and figuring out it's, it's actually a big, um, it ends up being a meaningful kind of strategic discussion within VC firms of for each investment. Yeah. When's the right time to what sell? Is, when is the right time to sell? And, and we also have the complication, we can distribute the shares directly to our investors. So we can just give them the shares rather than selling right. on the open market. So that's another lever we can pull. We can, we can hold, we can sell, or we can give the shares away uh, or give the shares back to our LPs. Is that LP decided or is that decided by the management of the VC firm? decided by the management of the VC firm. Huh. And then so the risk of, you know, the, the sort of LP argument, typically they want us to distribute as fast as possible because right. like, hey, you know, <laughs> that's our investment. We invest in you. These are shares. They're now liquid on uh, public currency. We have people that manage public stocks. You should give them to us. Right. The tension, though, is if we do that and um, we think there's a meaningful chance that they might just sell those shares, then that can be detrimental to the company. If a mm. whole slug of shares gets, comes on the market at once that can depress the share price. Um, so it's a complicated situation. Yeah. Um, hot take. Uh, this is uh, just today as we're recording this, uh, Amazon announced Amazon go. We got to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Amazon go is a, driverless drive-through store is that, am I getting that <laughs> autonomous <right>? ai <laughs> it is all of these things uh it's a grocery store here in seattle uh that you walk into and there are scanners and sort of um turnstile like things when you walk into the store you scan the amazon go app on your phone uh and then it identifies you and then once you're in the store uh you just pick up anything that you want to buy you put it in whatever, you hold it, you put it in your backpack, you put it in your purse, and you just walk out of the store. No no uh, checkout aisle, hmm. no cashiers, no nothing. It just automatically uh, tracks what you picked up and you pay for it through the app automatically. Yeah, I don't know if this will work, but I, I love 
uh, I, it's, it's impossible to overstate how much I love Amazon's muscle for experimentation and ability to like do tens or hundreds of these sorts of things at once. And it, it, it's interesting. I'd love to know how big the team was that pulled this off. I, I, I'm willing to bet it's a lot smaller than you'd think. Yep. What's also interesting, well, we don't know, but um, uh, one of the cool things about how Amazon works is there are these small teams within the company that are focused on innovative projects that they're doing. I, uh, there's a good chance this might be completely separate from the Amazon bookstore, uh, which is in U Village here. Yeah. Um, certainly, it's a very different uh, model of the store. Um, super cool. Love to see this innovation. I can't wait to... Uh, it'll be open to the public in early 2017. I can't wait to go try it. Yeah, Brian, what's your take? You going to check it out? I, I'm excited to go buy stuff and walk out <laughs> Just and, and see what happens. Feeling like I'm shoplifting, but it being totally legit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this, this is going to create all sorts of consternation for shoplifters. I mean, there's, there's you know, <laughs> how they're going to get around this is going to be an interesting question. Yeah. I wonder into the, you know, the product and the model for this, how much they thought about that. I mean, shoplifting is like a meaningful, um, you know, it's a meaningful cost to retail stores mm-hmm. and grocery stores. Um, this solves that problem. Maybe. I mean, you know, obviously, if they have technology that solves that problem generally, um, you know, in theory, everybody <laughs> everybody who does retail is going to want to buy it. Uh, you know, you yeah. have... Uh, you have lots of companies, or I shouldn't say lots of companies, but a few companies around that have you know, anti-theft, anti-shoplifting technologies. Uh, I did some work actually as an investment banker for a company called Sensormatic uh, back in the day, which uh, has some of those. And, and you know, they have some that uh, you, know, you put in clothes, and if you try and walk out, it you know, does the ink splash <laughs> across across the clothes to ruin them, just like you, you find with bank robbers. Yep. They put in those yep. ink things that yep. explode. Uh, others that just make the thing go beep. Um, but obviously, shoplifters, uh, you know, have ways Pre- to still to prevail deal with those things. Um, yeah, yeah. Can't so I don't know artificial what, intelligence though. <laughs> so there's an interesting question, right, with with tech uh, that, that Amazon's using here as to how they think this is going to work. Yeah. Um, all right. Carve outs. Yeah. So mine is uh, for years now, maybe even a decade, OK Go has been producing really incredible music videos and up-leveling their game every single one. So for anybody that remembers, maybe, I don't know, probably like 10 years ago, the, the Treadmills video where... Um, it, it went totally viral and they, they shot it themselves in their backyard and, um, you know, there's people dancing and they have this choreographed, it's the band members having a choreographed dance on treadmills and they up level their game over and over and over again. And, and maybe a year or two ago, they did this incredible drone shot one where it was, uh, you know, the first music video that I saw that, that, uh, really took advantage of, oh my God, what if we have this, uh, slowly rising drone go into the sky and, mm. um, you know, you can see patterns formed by thousands of people on the ground all wearing different things and they've they've up leveled their game again um so their their new video for the one moment um the entire video is shot in a super high frame rate camera and snapchat spectacles no (laughs) yeah it's not it's not but it's um it's exploding paint and like bullets going through things and it's also oh, is it it's it'll, like the matrix it takes place in like four seconds like the whole music video but it's wow. all super slowed down and so you have like three minutes of of super high frame rate footage oh that's and it cool. all actually lines up with the words they're singing and the, the music it's it's really really cool that's really cool um that's really cool yeah i gotta watch that uh mine uh which i alluded to earlier on the show um is uh uc berkeley um i 
just found out about this recently and read it. Um, they do this really cool uh, oral history, uh, this program that does oral histories uh, with people that have been um, instrumental in kind of the development of the Bay Area. Uh, mm. And uh, one of the aspects is business in the Bay Area. And um, they have uh, Don Valentine, who was the founder of Sequoia. Mm. Uh, and he founded Sequoia in the early 70s. He had been, um, he was at Fairchild Semiconductor. Uh, he was not part of the Trader Estate uh, that I believe was the Trader Estate left. Um, oh, where was it? But they founded Fairchild. Uh, and then he went to National Semiconductor and then he founded Sequoia. But these were like, this was the birth of Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, anyway, there's this great kind of 75 page. Uh, it's all a transcript of hours of interviews with Don. And it's... Um, it's fantastic just to hear him talk about that that history of the early days of the valley and the semiconductor industry, but also the philosophy behind Sequoia, how it started, um, how they uh, evolved their uh, thinking process about things, and they're still you know among the best in the business, um, and how they've evolved over the years. Uh, really cool. We'll link to it in the notes. Cool, Brian. Uh, we know you've got one too. Yes, yes, I do. I I, I find this uh, particularly in light of everything that's going on uh, right now uh, in terms of uh, the election is an article that O'Malley published in the New Yorker about a week ago called uh, "Silicon Valley Has an Empathy Vacuum," uh, and I think it's just a really interesting thought piece for all of us uh, just to think about. You know how what we do uh, affects uh, everything and everyone else, and, and whether or not there's more we could or should be doing, or, or less that we could or should be doing, uh, relative to that, uh, and that's relative to you know, job displacement, relative to uh, you know, kind of changes in society that uh, our technology uh, can can foster, such as how we're impacting journalism, uh, yep. you know, how we're impacting um, you know, culture and, and communities, and uh, and all sorts of things, and so it's uh, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's a great piece and um, certainly something I and Ben and I in the show have been thinking about a lot over the last you know month or so is, uh, um, you know, lots of questions uh, to be asked, but I don't think we can, uh, I don't think we should as a tech industry continue to operate just in ignorance of even trying to think about the broader impact yeah. of uh, what we're doing, especially as we head into, you know, this age of artificial intelligence and um you know all of the great things that are going to come from that and all of the social challenges as well so it was a great piece by by um yeah and to to just pile on like it's i'd recommend everyone read it for sure um something we have struggled with i think uh david and i and a lot of other people that that i've talked to in the last few weeks and even before the election um we celebrate a lot of the things that that technology does uh growth to hyperscale um being instagram in shock having and 13 awe. employees yeah, yeah. At, uh, in, in, when it was acquired in shock and awe of the um you know the model actually originally kind of created by microsoft of incredibly high fixed costs but then oh my god you can sell licenses to this software with zero marginal cost to the world at, at gigantic enormous scale and now with the internet making that even more accelerated um yes generally in the long term more jobs are created after a, a, a sing one or two generations of of uh, a gap by an advanced technology but i it um 
as an industry, we really do over celebrate these gains in the short term and really do not um, come up with solutions for all the people that are, are disenfranchised because of it. And I think that uh, th- this piece is really great. I think we are about to have a self-driving truck um, huge change. And if anybody looks at that, that uh, um, uh, graphic that was floating around the internet, um, about a year ago of, uh, truck driving is like the top job in 20 States. Yeah. Including California, including California. And yeah. like auto has just com- like acquired by Uber has just completed successful self-driving truck trips. Like it, it just doesn't feel like it'll be, um, too long you now. You can't ignore the, the consequences. Yeah. No, no. And I'm, I, I know I'm rambling a little bit on this, but it really, uh, we, we're, we're glad you brought it up, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes. All right. Should, we, should that, we bring it home? Yeah. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Um, to our listeners out there, if you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you've been a longtime listener of the show, or maybe you're a new listener and you just want to um, help us out, we would love, love, love a review um, on iTunes or a, a tweet or a share on Facebook or um, any way that you can help help grow the show. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And, Thanks uh, to Brian. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yep. Who got the truth? Is it you, is it you, is it you who got the truth?